from movement to medicine, climate change and our future, everything depends on energy. We use it to drive us, we use it to heal us. This is The Coefficient Life, and we sit down with the smartest scientists, futurists and thinkers on the planet to discuss the big ideas around energy in all its forms and ask the questions you wish you could ask them. I'm your host, Anthony Salomon. And I'm your other host, Kim Brooks. Anthony and I are here to bring you stories that are shaping the future of our planet. Now let's dive on into a universe of energy. From the Podcast Bureau, this is The Coefficient Life. We're all familiar with nuclear power, the disasters, the myths, the villains in movies and TV. But what's the truth around nuclear energy? How does it play into the future of curing climate change? And what other things can we use it for? Today, we sit down with a chair of nuclear radiological engineering medical physics program at Georgia Tech, Stephen Bogowski, and have a real and fun chat about the early days of nuclear energy. What was developed out of it? And how do we remove the negative stigma around it? so that it can be a real part of our future, which it needs to be. This is a pancake Geiger counter meant to detect contamination and other things. So it's actually very, very, very sensitive. And what we'll do is we'll just turn it on. And the cool thing about these Geiger counters that I like is that they beep, right? So you'll hear that little click there. And those are just, each of those is a detection and you're gonna get that anywhere that you live on planet Earth, right? And that just tells you, like right here, we just have background radiation hitting the detector and being detected. That's a lot of an indication of how sensitive it is, but it also just tells you we live with radiation every day. And if you were like on Mars with no atmosphere, that'd be pegged. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and there you go, right? Outer space travel gets a lot more, like. This is something Dr. Hertel that you'll talk to a little bit later. He has work looking at astronaut health and that type yes. of stuff. And worry about the deep bone dose and all that. For If you were to go on a deep travel, let's say to Mars, what kind of a dose would you get? So you know what this is, Ken? Yes, or I know what that is. I know what that is. Why don't you put that near the detector? So. That's Fiestaware. So this is just testing that out, right? So this is just a plate. Available at Walmart. For, well, I don't know if it's still available at Walmart, but this is a type of plate that was, I guess they made these in the 1950s and 60s. They were Art Deco. Every, every family had to have those. They came in nice turquoise. And, and it's colors. the paint on this that actually has like the uranium. The glaze, the glaze for yep. the firing. Within that is is actually, again, wow, right? So yeah. back in the 1950s and 60s, people would eat on this. Ironically, I still use it sort of as a coffee plate, but it is just sort of a good demo. Yeah, it's but it does just show you, you know, within our nominal uh, experience of things, we have radioactive sources all over the place. Some of the other things I'll play with here, and that's just stuff to show and show and tell with. We have various other, let's see. Yeah, this is actually just what uranium looks like when you find it. In Australia. In, the in Australia. Very, uh, again, very clear. See that yellow there? Yeah. yeah. That's actually what we call uranium oxide. It's what it looks like when you find it in the uh, wild. So put that underneath there. No, yeah. So you can see, again, I wouldn't be giving you anything. I wouldn't be giving my own kids. No, no, no. That, uh, that yellow there is U308 and how it's found in the wild. And the, the, 
literally like when you go back to your 1950s movies and 1960s movies, they'll have people doing different types of uh, uranium exploration and everything else like that. And this is what they use. And you can see how sensitive these detectors are to detecting, again, what would be just what you'd find in your natural rocks. Terrestrial radiation, really. And that is actually pretty cool. Uh, One of the other things I was going to show, and let's see if we can, again, we're just playing right here. Yeah. Another thing, I can take this over later. We've got all sorts of things to play with. Let's see if I can get this going. This is something interesting called VASOware. Yeah. This is where I get into the story of the Simpsons. I'm sure you've seen. Is that cobalt or what's in that cobalt? Or so it isn't. It is more active, but it's not as uh, it's not as active as the other thing. So that is that's actually uranium, uranium it's in, within the glass there. Make it green. And the deal is, is it is radioactive. Oh yeah. I sort of take the batteries out because this will drain if it isn't there. I'll see if it's, I can get this working. Might have to go in the other room. Let's see. Oh no. Batteries are dead. Batteries dead or the black light. Yeah, that's a black light. Or I put in the batteries wrong. Let me try the other one of these. But Anna's got these in her labs too. But I wanted to show you the natural fluorescence of uranium as well. So uranium, so it's radioactive, but it also fluoresces. And it sort of fluoresces like almost a little bit related to that color. So the interesting thing is that. If you've ever seen a beginning episode of The Simpsons, which I'm guessing you may have, they have like a little thing where Homer steals a uh, A rod. (laughs) Yeah, a fuel rod. And it comes off looking like this green. And the deal is, is that's the color of uranium fluorescing. It's not, doesn't have to do with any radioactive or radiation. It's, fluorescence uh, is, an, is a, an atomic outer shell electron effect, not a nuclear decay effect. Yeah. But the lay people don't understand that there are two different effects. Yeah. Technically, uh, here we go. burning carbon fuel is atomic energy because it's, 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 it's low-level energy transitions at the atomic level, atom level, at the electron level. And then nuclear energy is from the nucleus. It's to, two totally different things. Yeah. So why don't we go, if, if you want to pick that up, we'll go into a room that doesn't, isn't as well lit up here for a second. Oh, we'll go here and where we can actually yeah. make it dark. But what you can see here, and this is sort of the fun of it, is this is actually, you know, just typical black light, but that's uranium fluorescing. And so oftentimes when we look at our, you know, history of radiation, people often think of this color right here, this sort of green that was illustrated in the... Simpsons is being how radioactive material grows, what glows. Goonies or whatever they're there for. Hollywood but, loves that color for radiation. But it's actually the color of fluorescence. And again, back in the 1950s and 60s, people would actually make sort of glassware and things here that would actually glow. Radioactive level, it's really not, it's not as high even as those rocks, but you could detect it with that detector I just showed you. But the cool thing is, is this is uranium fluorescing, which is totally different than radioactive decay, but it gives you that historic green color. Actually, when, say, reactors glow, it's often the shrink-off radiation, and that's sort of more of a blue light. Yeah, that's 600. And so, but anyhow, if we were staying in my office, we probably couldn't see the fluorescing as easy, but this is very similar to your black light posters you had in your uh, room as a teenager or something with the the art uranium for the the fluorescing paint. But uranium does fluoresce. (laughs) Like my Doobie Brothers posters. But it does fluoresce, but it's green. Anyhow, that's just sort of some cool stuff. Well, no, that's amazing. I should have brought that rock in there. That 
The rock also fluoresces, yeah. Yeah, the rock will fluoresce as well. Now that's so a that's uranium oxide. I mean, that probably, all of that is uh, amazing because it will segue into conversation that would be very interesting to have about the sort of the start of what we know today as the nuclear program, you know, around energy and all kinds of things and sort of like your experience and knowledge of where that came from and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just playing here, showing you different things to, to start conversation with. Yeah. What that is, is that's actually, um, those are example fuel pellets. And so again, when you see that. Talking yesterday about this in the car. Yeah, we were. Yeah. So we have just from different examples, but that's what fuel looks like when it goes into a nuclear reactor. Which is, it's astounding that it's so small. Right, so you've got just a little pellet, but they stack them in rods that are, you know, 10, 11 feet tall, depending on the reactor design. And until yesterday, I thought that rod, that whole entire rod was one solid one of those. No, I just grabbed this in the car. And then you do that, okay. (laughs) And again, the goal there, and that's what they always say, is so this is basically 149 gallons of oil or... Uh, 1,780 pounds of coal is similar to the amount of energy that they get out of this little thing. Half inch tall. And I usually describe this as sort of like a number two pencil eraser. That's what this looks like. And that's cool. And another cool thing that I'll show you, again, we've got lots of toys, but we can play with it, is this right here. You can look at it. That's actually glass that was made from the first nuclear explosion. So at the Trinity test site, and we call that Trinitite. So, what was it? It's probably listed there. 1945? 40, 45, probably, yeah. 1945. 44, 45 would have been Trinity. Was the... Because um, they, they tested it before they dropped them on Japan. That might have been 44. What is it? Did, did it actually say? It may have been 44. Yeah. July 16th, 1945. Okay. The day after I was born. Many years later. <laughs> okay. I was like, the after my birth. not born in 1945. <laughs> But the cool thing about that, we could take those out if you want better pictures or anything about that. Put it on the detector, see what it does. Uh, it's not going to do anything. It's not, not right? going to do much. We do if we put it on a germanium detector, we can see still see cesium one thirty seven. Yes, we'd see it. Yeah, and so we can clearly see that. that if we want to play later, we can definitely. Because that's uh, actually from the blast side. Yeah, and that's you're holding it, and it, it won't set that off. Yeah. So again, when they <laughs> formed that first nuclear test in New Mexico in the desert of New Mexico to make sure that the fat man. Weapon design was going to go off and actually work because they weren't com- they weren't super confident that the Fat Man design, this is the plutonium based weapon, yeah. was going to work. They tested one in New Mexico, and again, it worked, <laughs> and it basically fused the desert sand into glass. Yeah, it, it's silica. And the silica's so, become glass, which is what glass is made. So of. I was able to obtain that. I obtained that many years ago, and you know, you you sort of buy things sometimes. I mean, I paid like ten dollars. It wasn't really expensive or anything. Yeah. But you always sort of, well, you're like, I don't know, I might be getting scammed here. You don't know what you're really buying. That's probably, yeah. And so uh, so we have to put it on. So, But we have the techniques. So we can put it on something called a germanium detector, which is much even more sensitive than this detector. And we can see some of these very long-lived fission products. Now, again, that underneath this detector isn't going to tell you anything. Yeah, the interesting thing is but, that, you know, I always think of like the byproduct of a nuclear reaction as being you have to now wait like, a thousand years for the, for the <laughs> oh. nuclear decay to, no. you know, for the half-life to be low enough for you to be able to go near it. Well, this was actually a lot of work. Oh, again, we can talk about this to death, but the, uh, yeah, in the 1950s, this was really crazy stuff too, is that they would, this was whole experiments that the army would do, the Department of Defense, is they would light off nuclear weapons and 
say, New Mexico. And then they would, again, this was the question they were asked. In, how in soon, ground or in atmosphere? First, it was just up till 1963, which was the partial test ban treaty. They were sort of above ground. Mm -hmm. And they would do some in the United States. They'd also do things like Marshall Islands and all these other things, depending on what they were doing. But they would light off nuclear weapons in the initial testings, and then they'd have their detectors very similar to this one, and they'd sort of try to figure out, like, how quick can we get the troops in after we right. have a nuclear explosion? If you nuke somebody, was, how can you get, when you get humans in there? And so they did a lot of that type of assessment, and you literally have these guys, there's pictures from, this is probably like 1960s, but very, very clear pictures of these Army guys all suited up with their helmets, and they got like a nuclear explosion in the background, and they're ready to sort of just like go in as quickly after it as they can. Now, I don't know what the final number comes up to be, but really what happens is that radioactive stuff is very hot right after the explosion, but you know, it, it decays significantly. And within a couple hours, it drops by many, many orders of magnitude. Yeah, by several thousand, tens of thousands and then, in a few hours. Yeah. But then again, it just it depends. It's a risk. It says, well, and there are some How quick do you go in versus out? Well, there are some particularly nasty things from a blast that do hurt humans badly just because yeah. of the happened. One of the things is iodine that's released. And and iodine gets caught in your thyroid, yeah, and it behaves chemically like the iodine that you need to keep from getting goiters. Yeah. But the radioactive iodine just burns your thyroid out. In fact, we use it now in nuclear medicine to treat Graves' disease, to treat yeah. thyroid cancer. That's what George Bush Sr.'s wife had done. Mm. It's an ablative technique, and it's the first radionuclide technique that's adopted widely. That's it's the very thing you worry about from a nuclear blast with children. They say pass out iodine tablets to the Chernobyl oh. families, right? He yeah. probably has iodine tablets. Yeah, it, what it, does, it fills your thyroid with iodine that's not radioactive. And then you, to support your lecture. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> am, I, am I doing everything correctly? It's been 10 years or 20 years since I've Well, well I mean, it's interestingly, as someone like I, I have a, a thyroid walker. issue and I'm prescribed, and you, you may very well get a radionuclide therapy. Oh, you're subscribed because you have like a thyroid. Uh... I have a thyroid issue, and I take daily as part of my medical regime is I take iodine tablets. But this is awesome because this actually says radiation blocking tablets. That's awesome. So it, it doesn't actually. It's sort of like a vitamin. It doesn't block it. Yeah, it yeah, just yeah. doesn't really block it. But your body, if if you eat or inhale or ingest iodine, yeah. your body will uptake it. Yeah. But if you've now taken one of these pills, you excrete it back out. Right. That your body basically absorbs all the iodine that it needs. And then if you take an extra beyond that, right, you just excrete it. It yeah. just goes to waste. Yeah. So I, I, I love the fact that it's called Rad Block. <laughs> it's just, yeah, so you should have a picture of that. <laughs> it reminds me of a, uh, you know, like of a video game. I love the branding. Yeah. Oh, the branding is amazing. But to, to your point, though, there are some things that come off that are particularly nasty for humans. And if you have a healthy thyroid and it's not full of natural iodine, you'll take up the radioactive and you'll burn your thyroid out. So there's these kind of things. And then there's there's other risks. So health physics is a study. So his, he's the chair of nuclear engineering, health physics, and medical physics. So what's the difference in health physics and medical physics? Go right ahead. <laughs> this is what, the, please explain the differences, Steve. I, I've had to give this lecture multiple times, even within the last couple months, right? So it, it sounds like... So, Ken, what was your degree here? Was it? Uh, it, ended up, it ended, I think it ended up on that diploma because of screw-ups. The weapon apologizing more as mechanical engineering. Oh, well, it's, it's, okay. it's mechanical engineering, but because nuclear engineering is under it, my minor was nuclear engineering because I had all the classes from MIT that you had. Yeah. They just transferred. My minor was done. All I had to do was take the core medical physics classes, and I right. took some computer science classes as a minor. But they were medical physics. So we used yes. to have a, an actual degree program here with health physics, and someone you'll meet later is uh, Nolan Hertel. 
And a few years ago, he was actually president of the American Health Physics Society. He was on my doctoral committee. Okay. But health physics is largely a field where you assess the danger or the risk of radiation, and you monitor that, and we have all sorts of fun things. On an individual level and on a national or worldwide level, or on a universal level. It's it's, uh, it's the assessment of radiation at all of its levels and all of its ways and, and biological beings in that radiation. Yeah, so, so, whatever so, that environment, like Mars, or yeah, I was about to, I was about to say, so it could be anything terrestrial. So you would hire them to figure that out. NASA yeah. would hire them to figure that out. But in addition to that, so <laughs> again, we have research health physicists like Nolan Hertel, who looks at things like, again, current research and radiation health for astronauts to do a mission to Mars, what's their radiation. But then at more of a working level, we also have health physicists whose job it is to protect us while we're working in radiation environments. I have never been in a radiation environment where I felt unsafe or anything else because we're constantly monitoring everything. We have very sensitive informa- like instrumentation. And if we do experiments in a lab or facility, we're always checking and doing like little swipes and putting it on detectors and trying to make sure things are there. And we also have things like radiation, basically little radiation detectors that are constantly monitoring our radiation levels. So we have health physicists down the hallway who, this is their job, and every month they change this out. But again, these are personal dosimeters, right? And when you're working in a radiation environment, you typically wear these on And this federal law stipulates what requires, what's a high enough environment to require this monitoring level. Yeah. And the the, the ring one is interesting. Yeah. I've never said that. That's for handling radioactive with your hands. Even with gloves, you put the ring on. So if you're handling radioactive material, typically you have one of these on your hands to do it. Now, your hands are not as sensitive to, you have certain parts of your body that are far more sensitive to radiation than... um, your whole body, your hands are actually not sensitive at all. So you could accept a much higher dose to your radiation hands than you might to your eyes or... Oh, definitely um, not your eyes or your gonads. Right. right. Um, Reproductive think, areas yeah, are right. very uh, gut, sensitive. Lining of your gut. <laughs> and this is uh, where we go. But, but that's sort of the field of health physics is understanding those radiation effects. And, you know, even going back now, and we talked about uh, nuclear explosions, there's a lot of work that still goes on in assessing radiation dose from historic nuclear tests. Marshall Islands is a key issue that there were some nuclear weapons that went off there that the Marshall Islanders were removed that, you know, were very interested in the long-term monitoring and making sure that the native populations there are not adversely affected. Look at how they can, I guess, move back into areas. Same thing with, say, the Fukushima accident. A lot of the people were evacuated from that region, but now they're moving back in. So there's a lot of work within the world of health physics to understand those levels, make sure that people are health and yeah. healthy and safe. And, and and what about something as as recent as um, I think it was a couple of years ago? They had that uh, other reactor in Japan, the one that's by the water. That's Fukushima. Uh, Fukushima. Yeah. yeah, that's what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually. Oh, they're already. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. yeah, but health. They don't. They only do that with the guidance of a health physicist. Yeah, that's a subspecial. So we did a lot of work. You don't even realize that's actually you learn a lot about medicine because you have to to know how to model the body. So, so (laughs) you know, we're talking about like obviously monitoring the health physics of humans. Yes, but you know, when you've got a a reactor and and from my understanding, a lot of them aren't built near the ocean, and it spills out into the ocean. Are you guys monitoring that kind of stuff as well? Oh, 100 percent. Oh, you know, that, that's environmental. That's the whole. So, oh, yeah. oh yeah. So we are very, 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 very active in making sure. But look, we have sensors all around the world where we monitor the world, high resolution, every day. 
looking for both natural radiation, but also looking for any sort of anthropogenic emissions. And I uh, did somebody super, like one off. Super, yeah, super yeah, sensitive. Yeah. Well, and that's where a lot of it comes into it. We do a lot of work looking for clandestine nuclear activities, and these sensors are like literally you can do Very things precise. that go on the other side of the world. So anything that would be harmful is, again, 10,000, 100,000 times higher than what these systems are capable of measuring. So very, very, very sensitive networks. But again, you got a whole world of people looking at this health aspect and dosimetry, radiation effects, those type of things. And then you have a field of medical physics. Ken is a medical physicist. Right. If he gives you a business card, he's got this these couple of these four initials at the end of his name. Usually, I'm guessing that's on your business card. It's D A B R, and that's a very important credential that again today students once they graduate or as part of school they have to go through a series of three board exams in order to get those initials after their names. Right, and, um, very extensive. But now you're working with patients in the medical field, right? So medical field, medical physics. So medical physics, I would classify into two areas. One is what we'll call imaging, and another is what we'll call therapy. And imaging, you have had medical physics imaging in your life, guaranteed. I don't know your medical history, but you've had a oh, dental no. exam, I, I, you've broken I, I, a bone. Literally, you've had I literally a... had an MRI like two weeks ago, okay. three weeks ago. There you go. <laughs> um, but all that is considered imaging, and you can do that in we have everything from using radionuclides to do imaging, like you inject someone with technetium 99M and uh, target certain organs like your heart, and you can do live imaging, heart scans. Once you watch it decay, you can watch it decay. You have detectors. Oh, yeah, I've had that. Put, it up, put up, makes them around and watch it, it decay. Like makes it feel like I'm weighing myself, but yeah, I've, I've, I've had that. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's a part of medical physics, and that's very important for imaging. If you have like an overactive thyroid, mm -hmm. uh, Ken had mentioned iodine-131. Sometimes what they'll do, in addition to just giving you iodine to treat an underactive thyroid, if you have an overactive thyroid, they can give you uh, iodine that will go into your uh, thyroid to then actually help kill off some of your thyroid to or slow its activity reduce down. the activity. And all that is sort of part of one part of medical physics. You have another part of medical physics, which is therapy. And this is largely the treatment of cancer, but from talking to Mo last night, there are other areas of therapy that you can use radiation for, but I can, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the overwhelming application of radiation therapy is for cancer. Yeah, yes. And uh, 98%, 99% of it is. Yeah. is and again, you have two paths within therapy. One of these is, again, a lot of what Mo talked about was what we'll call external beam therapy, which is you have these big machines, and we'll show you downstairs today one of these big machines that... You can take x-rays or electrons and, you know, focus and collimate and basically target tumors to get rid of, basically kill the cancer. And then you have a second path, which is more like injecting of radionuclides. And so that's called brachytherapy in the various forms. Brachy is the German word. Brachy means close to, close by in German. And so brachytherapy means you put the source close to the tumor. <laughs> so originally it was done operatively. Oh, but they got, a, they got an inoperable tumor. If I take it out of the mass, it'll cause them to bleed to death. Let's just open them up and then put a bunch of radiation there and leave them open for as long as they can stay under anesthesia, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. no, and, then, and then brachytherapy for skin lesions was the beginning of how they treated them. Because all they had originally was were fission products, which were decaying, and using those using those, those decay particles to treat with. Because you didn't have, the Lenac invented until the 70s. 
Yeah, it was interesting. Last night we were talking about women were using uh, radiation, topical radiation to get rid of like public oh, yeah, facial hair yeah, and things yeah. like that. But then you get a skin cancer later. Exactly, yeah. So. so there is a balance there, right? And again, there's historic But that's mostly 80-20, 90-10. being teletherapy, we call it, from a varian-type machine, Tim Burton machine. <laughs> <laughs> or about 10% is now bracket. It used to be the other way around. There were no Tim Burton machines. Yeah, yeah. All you had was all you had That's was right, one. Yeah, your neighbor will go down. So we have a varian machine downstairs. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about that, and you can tell your neighbor that you got to see one. It's usually, uh, well, again, we'll talk about that a little bit later today. And, but again, we can talk about it as soon as you like. But the goal would be is that it's very interesting to see these different applications. And but the medical applications are usually again that imaging or the therapy aspects of things. And. There's a lot of versatility and a lot of advancements still to this day going on. And again, you talked to Mo last night, and it yeah. is very exciting with regard to how positive the current research is for being able to address cancer. And it's, yeah. it is sort of a shame, though, in the sense that a lot of the work that Mo talks about and what he's doing is really at the research stage and getting that to all the way out to you know, clinical use for nominal patients can take a decade or longer. And, yeah. But what we're looking at is very significant improvements in the way that again, cancer can be treated and the outcomes there and some of the things like flash therapy. I'm not sure if Ken's yeah, gotten into we, we stopped, flash therapy too much, we stopped, but I'd, I'd be surprised if he hasn't mentioned flash therapy. I, I, think, I think I heard about, about eight hours of conference calls about flash therapy yesterday. So flash therapy, very advantageous. But again, that's still not in, in what, I mean, the, the results are, so Ken invited me this, was it this summer or two summers ago? I don't know. I sat through a day's worth of lectures and Ken was one of the lectures looking at the positive you know, research aspects of flash therapy and the successful outcomes, but just flat out amazing yeah. what the it's results can be. And, and I, I um, think there's a point you can make here for the for the cinema, cinema for the, the producer of a movie to think about or the people communicating to the lay people. Yeah. It is that he has this little department, a very small department here, with not many faculty members. And why is it that department can serve all these diverse applications of radiation? It's because they break down to just some fundamental aspects that are the same whether it's a weapon or whether it's a health physics application or whether it's a medical physics application, you have to know the fundamentals of how radiation transports. So he has a core course in radiation transport. You have to know the fundamentals of how you detect all the types of radiation, no matter which of those you want to go into. You can quickly see there's a common core of courses, and he just has to staff those, and then he can have all these diverse applications, and that's what the program, N-R-E-M-P-H-P, <laughs> it means all those diverse applications, but at the core of it all, it's just nuclear decay and radiation and all the forms that we know of them, being able to use those commercially, medically, industrially, in some way. And that's what his department does. It prepares students to go out in the world and do that. Yeah, so, I mean, you've obviously been doing this for quite a while. And, you know, there's obviously something about it that continues to excite you. What's the thing, sort of looking into the future of this of this field, that still gets you super excited? Well, fundamentally, again, I'll, I'll sort of treat that tangentially. One of the things, so I'm actually a professor, right? So that's our core thing. And what excites me the most is seeing the success of our students. So just fundamentally ignore the technology. One of the most amazing things I love to see as a faculty member is a student that you remember being 18 years old and sort of being eager, but still has a long way, a lot, lot to learn. Yeah. And then you see these students grow and then like 
you know, you start seeing them. And I was at a professional conference this week, and then you see them in the professional environment. You see them presenting and be an expert. You sort of get this very, I'll call it parental type of pride that you look and you see these people that you helped and did nurture and guide along the way. And then they sort of take off and fly. And so the thing that always excites me is just seeing the student growth and you know, really these people who come in as kids and then you see them develop into, you know, professional adults. And it really gives you, uh, again, I, I find that exciting and I always really enjoy seeing the students succeed. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, on that, I, I, I would I would have to uh, ask the question that obviously uh, you love seeing students succeed. Yeah. Then you sort of my brain flips into making a movie mode and uh, I go, well, what if there's that one student that succeeds so much, but for the wrong reasons now becomes the bad guy in the movie. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen that as much, but we've seen some really great success stories and some amazing success stories. Yeah. And that's always good. But as far as the field goes, look again, what we do is we work in the world of, again, we're very diverse in what we do, but we work in the world of health physics and medical applications I really want to see Ken's flash therapy revolutionize how we treat cancer. I yeah, mean, everyone does. And Everyone's that will geeked about it. Yeah, and that, that I mean, literally, <laughs> phenomenally. If I ever were to get cancer, I hope that those things are available for me, me. too. Yeah, yeah. Me I mean, too. For, for, for me too. For, from the very limited conversations <laughs> that we've had about it, and my very, very lay so, understanding of what. So the lead of Stanford, Billy Lou, calls me in the car driving over yesterday, and we we walked, we talked an hour or more. Yeah, more. Fly around and round and round and round. And this is like these people are stoked and geeked beyond you anything I've ever seen in this field since I've been in it for thirty years, nearly now. Yeah, and as I was saying, from my from my lay understanding of what I was listening to yesterday and our conversation about it, I think that it's a very exciting thing to be able to save all that healthy tissue and and just attack the and, things and you want to was, attack. More what, what breaks my heart sometimes, like we could walk. It's a twenty minute walk to the Emory Proton Therapy Center, just right after the hotel where we stayed, just a few blocks from the hotel. And one of the things that you see is that you see you if you were to go over there today, especially the Proton Therapy Center, you see a lot of kids. And you see these treatments and you see what they're going through today, but you know that there's these options that are being developed. Flash would be especially good for pediatrics. That really just order of magnitude could change the outcomes of what they're currently going through. And what they're doing today is amazing in comparison to what was available 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But sometimes my heart aches when I see these kids and you look at, you know, these kids are sick. They have cancer. And they need you to use uh, your knowledge of this radiation quickly. Get on the job. Yeah, and get I mean, it done, that, right? that, that's one thing that's always <laughs> like my brain is that, as you say, there are these kids that are getting treatment with today's best. And you go, this will probably extend your life by eight years, 10 years, whatever it is. But if you could just get to that 10 year point, we know there's this other technology that could save your life coming or that could extend it for another 20 years beyond that. Yes. And it, it's forever. I, I can't imagine what you guys go through playing that chasing game when it comes down to real human lives of being like, just get to this point because we know there's this thing coming that could really help. Well, you get about, you ask him basically a question about what motivates him. Yeah. I think he answered that pretty good. Yeah, that was very motivating. And then another tier of what we do is power, right? And here within the state of Georgia, you can see sort of a little flyer for it right there is we're the only nuclear Plant power plants that are being developed within the state of Georgia are here in or right here in the state of Georgia. We got Vogel 3 and 4 that are coming online. Pressurized water reactors. Uh, advanced pressurized water reactors. We call these Gen 3 systems, just from the nomenclature we were talking about before. 
and they're being developed and will be coming online. You know, again, uh, hold your breath and it will happen. And we have, and again, from an exciting point of view, our students are involved in those projects and you see them. Not only are our students involved at the lower levels of those projects, some of our students are now leading those projects, right? That's amazing. They're yeah. not our recent graduates, but they are yeah. that. So again, this is sort of the success of the students you see. And you see your students out there uh, that we produced at Georgia Tech that went through this program that are now sort of leading the world with the you know, development of nuclear reactors and building that within the state of Georgia. But even more so, and fundamentally, we can spend a tremendous amount of time on the absolute need for nuclear power to get to, we'll say, lower carbon emissions across the globe. Yeah. And not only that, we can talk about timelines for fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, we can Sometimes you can read and say that there we got 50 years or 100 years or, a thousand, or whatever. Or even five, I've seen 500 or 1,000 years projections. Depending on what those projections are. But as we go forward, this is why Bill Gates is himself heavily involved in nuclear and the development of TerraPower and those type of systems, is that really to meet the energy needs of the future, nuclear reactors are the only sustainable way to do that. Fission reactors. Yes, fusion reactors. Fusion reactors. If a fusion reactor come on, that's gravy. That's wonderful. Yeah, but they're going to fusion the, reactors up. are something we always hope have been in the future. And yeah, um, our Star Trek episodes, but still have <laughs> ways to go <laughs> until they are commercially viable. And I can't tell you if that's ten years off or a hundred years off. I, I will say I've seen a, a lot, a lot more recently about those types of reactors being worked on and and things like that. So there is I mean it's exciting, but as you say, it's a it's pipe dream. So, it's so, Star Trek so, so, so tri- the trick is if you take what he says, and I think anyone anyone who I think everyone, all sentient beings on the planet Earth would say Bill Gates is a serious person. Yes. Yeah. Right? He's used his intelligence and his money and his wealth Take a look at this problem because he's really genuinely concerned about it. He's come to the conclusion that you need to figure out how to make a safe fission reactor. Mm-hmm. And you just and the exclusion of renewables. You used a key word, right? Safe. And I know we were talking about this before. Is that the conversation when you talk to just the general person walking down the street? You say the word nuclear or the word radiation, and they think immediately it's unsafe, it's dangerous, it's what the bad guys want in the movie, it's all of these yeah. things, and that conversation needs to change. It needs to be more about here is why it is safe and here's why it's great for long-term Well, that's in fact, and, that's the definition of what a medical physicist does. Yeah. They are the QA safety police for the use of radiation in medicine. That's what a medical physicist is. MDs aren't. They prescribe it. I'm a PhD. They're a PhD and MD. I cannot prescribe it, but I fill the prescription yeah. safely. Yeah. And I, I don't screw the prescription up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically, right? That's how that works. And you also double check to make sure the prescription is correct. We do, we do, we do. And sometimes we do a time value calculation. If a, a patient got sick and vomited and got had to, couldn't carry on for three days of treatments, we do the, the biology calculation for them to tell them how much, how to make that up and the dose safely. And so that, this is something that so we're intimately aware of that. Yeah. So the doctor, the MD, has a history of prescribing. We have a history of, of helping them deliver it safely. And the health physicists are doing the same thing for the rest of the world's use of radiation. <laughs> They're the safety police and the safety cops. So every other few people that you look after. <laughs> well, but but the, the use of nuclear power is something we have to move forward with. And again, we're talking about exciting. We're on a project with to basically build a molten salt reactor in Texas. And right now we're at the design and licensing phase. This is privately funded. And a lot of that is really just the recognition, especially within the state of Texas, that they have to move towards more nuclear. They, Texas this last year had an energy crisis. It got very cold. 
solar and wind completely failed on them. And it was a crisis at the worst time. But nuclear power was there. And and it is something that is sustainable going forward. And there's applications for everything from using reactors for the production of these radionuclides that we use for heart scans and other type of things, for power production, for hydrogen production, for um, clean water. And there's a lot of areas of the world. Yeah. You can use nuclear power to crack that. So you don't have to burn any more carbon to actually crack the carbon to make it something right. that you know that we talked about and you and I talked yeah. about yesterday. And yes. this is right, but this gets into desalination, right? Too. Desalination. It's like using water uh, power, like yes. areas yes. of the world that need clean water. That's what, that's what the Saudis are doing. That's what the stuff. That's what they're trying to do. And so yeah. there's a lot of these applications. Yeah. And then we have another. Again, talk about we could talk for ages, but we have another area that we often call radiological engineering, which is the uses of radiation. So this is everything from how do we do border security to prevent you know, dangerous things to using nuclear technology to scan your t- suitcase when you go through the airport to even food or I guess food treatment. So we have, some, we have some work going on right now and some companies that, again, started by our alumni here. There's a company called ScanTech that has a facility right now that's really just amazing on the border between Texas and Mexico to then basically treat food as they come, agriculture products avocados, as they come yeah. across the border. You're not only getting rid of bacteria, so most strawberries that you've eaten in your life have likely been treated with some, again, we're not making it radioactive, but what you're doing is you're hitting it with like an electron beam or x-rays, and you're killing the bacteria to give the food a longer shelf life, right? Yeah. And then the second part is, is again, you can also kill insects and all these other things. And so all the food that comes across the border, they want to treat, and ah, this is just phenomenal. There's also chemical methods to do that. Those chemical methods are shown to be far less efficient. And the way the EPA is going is they're sort of phasing out the the chemical methods and building up the use of things like electron accelerators to treat these agricultural products. And again, that's improving our safety. And it is, again, amazing how that goes. When we talk about solving world problems, if we can increase food preservation, prevent spoilage, just huge impacts across the globe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mean, you, you you hear about all the time all of these pesticides and herbicides and things that then end up causing other issues when you ingest them. And then here you have a a solution that could very well make make that a a, a moot point. And then again, uh, you'll talk to Dr. Erickson. She leads a major consortium here, which we look at emerging technologies and how they may affect nuclear nonproliferation. As you know, nuclear is a double-edged sword, right? We have all the peaceful applications and everything that we're talking about, but we also do have nuclear weapons development. So a lot of what we do as well is look at methods to monitor the world for nuclear activities, try to identify if countries are trying to develop nuclear weapons, how they're utilized, and what activities are going on. And again, that is when we look at NSF grand challenges, trying to prevent the development of nuclear technology by We'll just say rogue groups or nations is also very important, and we really, uh, you know, have a lot of work going on with that as well. So again, it's all very exciting. And I, again, yeah, I won't try to uh, go across the board there, but these are all the touch points that we have impact on, and and it really is across many facets that are very important for our society. It's super interesting because, as you said, double-edged sword. So as much as we love the good things about it, you have to monitor the bad, and it'll be a very interesting time talking to everybody. Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's cool. Well, that was a nice introduction, Steve. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find the Coefficient Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a topic you want to hear more about, follow us on social media and message us through Facebook. Remember, energy is everywhere. Use yours wisely. Thank you.